0: I have three kids, two girls and and a boy, and we bought all of them uh, dolls and trucks, and the girls put the dolls on the truck and make them beautiful. And my son ran them over with the truck, right? So there there are differences in the way kids play. Probably the worst trade deal ever agreed to. Breaking news here, stocks all around the world are tanking because
1: of the on Wall Street. Hallo Leute, ich bin Andreas Sartor. Auf diesem Podcast habt ihr alle meine Interviews, die ich für den Standard mache, in voller Länge. Uh, nicht schrecken, der Podcast heißt jetzt Nachfrage und nicht mehr Standard Economics. Ich habe mir gedacht, das passt besser, aber nicht so wichtig. Uh, viel wichtiger, dieses Mal ist Jurik Misi zu Gast. Der ist Professor an der University of California San Diego und einer der bekanntesten Verhaltensökonomen der Welt. Bevor ich euch erzähle, worum es heute geht, wenn euch der Podcast gefällt, würde ich mich echt freuen, wenn ihr ihn abonniert. Das geht ganz einfach am Handy mit einer Gratis-Podcast-App. Also, Gnisi ist ein Verhaltensökonom, das heißt, er beschäftigt sich damit, warum wir tun, was wir tun. Zum Beispiel, warum so viele von uns rauchen, obwohl wir wissen, dass es ganz schlecht für uns ist oder wie man Leute dazu bringt, dass sie nicht mehr zu spät kommen, wenn sie ihre Kinder vom Kindergarten abholen. Die erste Hälfte vom Gespräch, so circa eine halbe Stunde, haben wir darüber gesprochen, warum Männer so unterschiedlich sind wie Frauen. Sie sind zum Beispiel bessere Verhandler, gehen lieber Risiken ein und sie steigern ihre Leistung, wenn es Wettbewerb gibt. Das ist bei Frauen nicht immer so, wie seine Forschung zeigt. Und das ist ziemlich wichtig, weil das hat auch einiges damit zu tun, warum Frauen weniger verdienen als Männer. Wir reden darüber, warum das so ist. Liegt es etwa an der Biologie? Also es ist über zigtausende Jahre entstanden durch die Evolution oder durch die Sozialisierung, also die Art und Weise, wie wir zusammenleben und unsere Kinder großziehen. Wir reden darüber, welche Konsequenzen das hat. Denn in der heutigen Welt setzt man sich oft nur durch in Firmen, wenn man seine Ellbogen einsetzt. Jetzt könnte man meinen, müssen Frauen halt ein bisschen riskanter und wettbewerbsliebender werden. Aber, das sagt der Gnisi, aufpassen. Und vielleicht ist es besser, dass wir unsere Arbeitswelt den Frauen anpassen, als die Frauen den Männern. Denn ob man glücklich wird, wenn man sehr kompetitiv ist, das ist alles andere als sicher. Wir haben dann noch über ganz viele andere Dinge gesprochen. Uh, zum Beispiel darüber, wie er seine eigenen Kinder großzieht und ob ihm seine Forschung da irgendwelche Ratschläge gegeben hat. Uh, oder wir haben darüber gesprochen, wie man Leute dazu bringt, dass sie ins Fitnessstudio gehen, was sich ja ganz viele von uns vornehmen, aber dann in der Realität oft nicht machen. Mir hat das Interview großen Spaß gemacht. Ich habe einiges gelernt. Ich hoffe, euch geht's genauso. Gute Unterhaltung beim Podcast. Tschüss. tschüss i'd love to start to talk about um, men and women they're apparently different they look different they behave different and you did a lot of research on certain ways women and men behave right could you uh, tell me a little bit about that
0: right so actually we started thinking about this in As a result of an accident, basically, it's together with Aldo Roustakini and Uriel Niederlein. We looked at something else. We tried to see what happens when you let people compete in the laboratory. And I ran it, I was back in Israel then, and I ran the experiment myself. And what was interesting is that I saw, when I was present in the lab, lab, I saw that men and women reacted differently when we introduced incentives. And then, then I, start, you know, I started to record it, and we looked at the data, and we saw that indeed there is a difference. And what we saw was it was a very simple task. We brought three men and three women to the lab, so we had six subjects. In one case, we let them solve mazes for 15 minutes and told them that they'll be paid, say, a euro per maze that they solve.
1: What's a maze?
0: Maze, uh, what you, you know, you, need to, you start in one end and you have to go all the way to the, to the other end. Okay. So puzzles, right? Yeah. They had to solve puzzles on the, on the internet. And in one case they got a euro per maze that they solved. In the other case we made it a tournament. So the, the winner, so the one who solved the most, got six euros per maze that he or she solved. So in one case, you don't compete against anyone, you just do as best as you can. In the other case, you are paid only if you are better than everyone else. And what we found out is that we did it with different people. We found out that when we introduced the competitive incentives, men reacted to it much more than women. So women performed about the same when it was peace rates, so when they got a euro per maze, or when it was a winner-take-all competition. But men reacted by making much more effort. So that's how we started looking at uh, gender and competition in general. And then, so we have a series of papers of that and other people have picked up on it and we always had the question of whether it's uh, nature or nurture, right? So are are we born differently or um, is it something that happens to us when we grow up and uh, so part of the culture? So what we did, we took babies and we raised some of them. No, we didn't do that. They didn't let us do that. But we needed to find some kind of culture that will, will allow us to do this. And you can think about uh, when you drive back from the hospital with the baby, it's usually the man that drive. So it's, there are arguments for uh, cultural impacts from uh, from day one of, be- of, of the baby. But there are also, you know, I have three kids, two girls and, and a boy, and we bought all of them uh, dolls and trucks, and the girls put the dolls on the truck and make them beautiful, and my son ran them over with the truck, right? So there are, there are differences in the way kids play also, which seems to be uh, more, seems to be deeper than just the culture that, that we see, but it, you cannot separate it without looking at some other cultures. So what we did is uh, we went to two very extreme cultures. One of them is the Maasai in Africa. The Maasai is a very proud tribe that, in which basically men are controlling everything. So a man buys a woman, a woman costs 10 cows depending on how old she is but that's more or less. A man can have men, you know, as many women as he can afford. He can beat his wife. Um, the, the woman uh, works and does, so the, when they wake up in the morning, the man gets up, drinks tea and goes with the, with the herd. And the woman does all the housework and if they have field, you know, corn, she'll work in the field and she'll raise the kids and she, so she's working much harder. Um, it's a very extreme society in which, very patriarchal society in which women have very little uh, power. The contrast to this is a matrilineal society. So it's not, a, it's not a matriarchal society because it's not that women are in charge of everything. But for some historical reasons, women are in charge of everything within the house. So they, only women are allowed to possess, to, to own real estate. And they decide about what you know, how to spend the money the house belongs to them, so a man lives either with his mother, or his sister, or his wife in their house, in which they determine the rules. It's not the opposite, it's not like the Maasai, but reversed, because the, the village politics is still done by men. Um, but it's, it's a very interesting society. So in the, um, in the Maasai, if you ask a man how many kids he has, he will tell you how many boys he has. He will not mention how many girls he has. And in the, the, other, the other tribe that we went to, it's in northeast India, in the city of Shillong. They're called Kasi. Uh, over there, like I said, women have much more power. And the, the question was, would that be enough if you are raised differently? So we don't assume that there is a difference in the genes, right? So uh, natural differences. So if we wanted to see whether the culture could really affect uh, behavior. So we ran some experiments with competition and we found that in the Maasai, the men were much more competitive than, in, than the women, but very much the same as if you would do it in Vienna or in Tel Aviv or San Diego. So they were more competitive than women, about you know, twice according to our measure, but not differently than what you see in other Western societies. How did you measure that? So we, we used a task in which um, the participant had to choose whether they want to be paid according to peace rate or according to winner take all. So you could either get, uh, we gave them tennis balls to throw into a bucket and throw it ten times from three meters and they were paid for every success that they did. They had to choose between being paid say u- one euro per success or three euro per success if they do better than someone else. So either you're just competing with yourself in a sense, so it's a peace rate, or you're competing against someone else. And we saw that men were twice as likely to choose to compete. In the Maasai, and that's true, well, you know, you'll find it in Vienna and in everywhere that, that you do it more or less, you find the same. And the, the main question of this research was whether with the Kasi, the matrilineal society, whether we see the same. And we found that, no, we found that actually women were slightly more competitive than men in that society. So basically the the main finding is that the culture, the way you are being brought up, uh, affects uh, your tendency to compete. So it's not just, we're not saying that it's only culture, right? It's clearly not just culture, there are differences between men and women like you started, uh, in many other dimensions maybe. But at least the culture could be so strong that it can overcome this uh, this difference.
1: What's the consequence of this for our practical lives? For if we if we think about it ourselves as a, as a society, um, do are there any conclusions you can you can draw for politicians? Does it have impacts on the gender pay gap, for example? Right,
0: so you can think about a few directions of this. So one of them is that, well, you can educate girls to be more competitive, more like boys, right, in that respect. So that's kind of the lean-in movement and many other things. So uh, if culture is important, that means that if you raise your girls to be more competitive, then maybe they'll be more successful. They'll probably be more successful because in, in terms of uh, career, they'll be more successful. Now, the, the, there are some philosophical questions around it. For example, are they going to be happier? It's not clear that being more competitive will make you happier. It might, you're more likely to end up as a CEO maybe of a company, but not, not necessarily happier. Those are, those are questions that we don't really know the answer to. Another question is why is it that again we want to change the women instead of changing the workplace. So think about uh, say that you want to, you have an architectural uh, office so you design homes or you need a programmer right so I have a friend that uh, computer engineers engineer and she was looking for a job as a computer scientist in a a company and she says that basically she she was brought in and was given 30 minutes to do something with the boss, the future boss standing behind her shoulder and you know so very very stressful environment which has nothing to do with the job itself so in the job itself she's not working on something that takes 30 minutes she has you know Weeks, months to solve the problem. So she's the the job requirement doesn't include uh, performing under pressure. You know, if you want to be a fighter pilot, you need to perform very well under pressure. But if you're a programmer, you don't. And the question is, why is it that the selection process is more competitive than the job itself? Because that could lead very often to to mistakes like that. So you. You're more likely to choose the more competitive person, but n- not necessarily the better person for the job.
1: You think that that example is is rep- representative of a broader problem?
0: Yes, no. I think that uh, that in general we are uh, the environment. So there are many other aspects that also relate to. To gender differences in the workplace. So you can think about in Europe, I think the, the world is more sane, but if you look at you know in New York in Wall Street, if you want to be in the finance industry, you have to work eighty hours a week. Now, normal people don't want to work eighty hours a week, and women are more likely to be normal than men in that respect. So Basically, they, they, it's kind of self-selection. Women don't go to this pos- this uh, profession. They they want to see the kids, for example. There is no reason to work 80 hours a week. It's, no one is productive at the, you know 75th hour of of their week. So what happens? You know, you go. You are mu- much more likely to drink coffee with the with the friends and then beer in the evening and then uh, check your Facebook or whatever, and the workplace would have been much better and I think again that Europe is much better in that respect if you would define it as eight nine hours a day during these eight nine hours you work you don't check your Facebook you you actually work and then then you're free to be you know to have life also right so that's another example in which uh, think about the requirement that you have you'll have right now women can cut their hair and they have a shorter, short one too but it's it's kind of discriminating because of preferences that are not relevant for the job itself so I think that reducing the competitiveness of the selection process such that it will match the competitiveness of the job itself reducing the hours into normal hours and um, there are other examples so I'm My friends in in Amsterdam, they have a very nice department, but there are 11 men and one woman in the department over there. They go and play football twice a week and then, you know, shower together and then go and have beer, which is completely legitimate, right? It's it's fine, but she's left out, right? So it's kind of hard to be in, uh, in, in an environment in which, the, you know, there is a it's male-dominated, right? And again, there are nothing in what they do is bad. It's just that it's very hard, you know, they go and uh, they, when they have beer, they talk about stuff, they talk about research and that's how they get to to have uh, more success, right, a better network. And she's left out in a sense, right? So there are many things that should be done around these points that I raised that could really reduce the gender gap, I think, in the long run.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, You were talking about uh, competitiveness now, are there other things you discovered where men uh, differ from women behaviorally?
0: So many of them are related to each other so Mm. risk aversion or attitudes towards risk are very much related to competitiveness when you increase the the competitiveness of the environment you also make it more risky in a sense and we found the strong differences in risk-taking. Um, so in general uh, when you look at an environment, especially with financial risk-taking, you see that women tend to be much more risk-averse, much more conservative than men. It's true also about other domains, so raising kids. When I went to the playground, we, when we went to the play- playground with our kids, if my wife was, was watching them I didn't have to look myself because I knew that her threshold to what what they're allowed to do, what's risky and they shouldn't do, is much lower than mine, right? So, And I think that that's true in general. I don't think that's what the data shows, that uh, that women are more risk-averse in most of the cases than than men, so that's another example and being more risk-averse could be, could mean in some situation that you are going to be less successful. So if you have to choose between a career that will have high return, high risk and high return or a more uh, conservative uh, career you're more likely if you're risk averse you're more likely to to choose the more conservative less uh, risky career and it will also have lower uh, expected value in a sense.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing I was thinking about relating to this is that on the one hand men um, profit from their from taking risks, from lobbying competition because they are more successful in politics, in business. They are they make more decisions, they have more power in our societies. Right. In all Western societies. But at the same time you have um men as a group where there's a lot more violence, a lot more crime, they are very often or at least more often drug addicts, alcoholics, than women. Is it is this like the the, the, the other side of the medal?
0: No, so there are that's what we said about born differences between men and women, I think. So clearly men are more aggressive than women, right? So there is higher testosterone. There are many good reasons to look at it. There are also evolutionary reasons. So um, starting with Darwin and going forward to Trivers and others, the argument, the evolutionary argument, is that uh, men, or it's male and female, so it's not just uh, human beings. So females have much higher cost of having offspring. So to have babies is it's much more costly for them. So they need to be very picky with. uh, whom they're going to mate, whereas men can just have as much as they want because it's the the cost of raising kids in in nature, we're not talking about the modern family, but we're talking about the days where revolution was uh, still effective, Uh, men need to compete in order to to win the the females, right, so males have to compete to win the female, and that means that males that will be more aggressive and more competitive are going to be more successful on average. And so that's the, that's the evolutionary roots, if you like, of the, of the aggressiveness and the competitiveness. And um, I think that it's quite clear if you look at the statistics that uh, we would have had less murders, less robberies, less uh, violent crime, probably also less wars if women would have controlled the world, but we don't know that that's uh, counterfactual. I think that very often what you see in politics is that the women that make it in the in the men's world, right? Because it is a men's world, they are often more competitive and more risk uh, taken. So I don't think that Hillary Clinton is less competitive than any man that I know, right? So she in order to get where she where she did, she had to be extremely competitive, extremely aggressive, and I think that in general it's true that Everything I said so far is true for averages, so you know, if you look at the distribution of women there are more aggressive men than aggressive women, there are more competitive men than competitive women, but of course indiv- certain individuals you need to judge according to how they are. And I think that the current, the current leaders, whether men or women, are very similar to each other because they grew up in this very competitive environment
1: um what roles do stereotypes play social norms um if if i'm a man um society expects me to be strong to don't show that many emotions if i'm a woman and i'm very um aggressive there's kind of a right social penalty yes if you if you would say that um does this play a big role
0: so I teach negotiation in the, in the business school and in negotiation you also see big differences between men and women. Now one of the arguments for that is exactly what you said, that, uh, what we call the backlash. So if I'll go and be aggressive in the negotiations, so you know it's, it's a podcast so people don't see, I'm 50 year old with Israeli accent, white hair, I go and people think that I'm a great negotiator. I have colleagues that are you know, young women and the students don't think that they are great negotiators, right so there is some some um, some like you said stereotypes that that are uh, connected to this, and if a man will go and be very aggressive, he will be you know is the man right uh, that's what he wants that's that's the lawyer that you want. and if a woman would do this, then you'll have other uh, ways of describing it that are that are not going to be that nice and because of that you can have backlash so the best behavior uh, for men could be different than it is for women. So it could be that women just... It's not that, uh, oh, women are less good at negotiating. No, they're they're starting from a much less, uh, in a a disadvantage in a sense, because if they'll be aggressive, the the backlash against them will be uh, much stronger than it will be against men. So the stereotypes definitely work in, you know, to. Make it to make it even worse there are other examples so think about uh, financial advisors so again like I said about politicians financial advisor there's probably not that much difference between men and women that go to this profession so if I'm the manager of the bank and I need to hire a financial advisor I in terms of the, the way they'll behave I can choose the one that will be better but it could be that you know I'm going to this uh, uh, older couple that have very strong stereotypes that you know men are going to get more money for them In from their investment than women so I might decide not to hire uh, a woman Even if I know that she's just as good as the men or even better because I know that my clients are going to To have problems with having a woman over there, right? So that's uh, That's a big difference so women can indirectly suffer from that yeah
1: um if i summarize your point from before um if we want to change um the or if we want to improve the chances women have in the, in our workspace we shouldn't make uh we probably shouldn't make women more competitive we should make our workspace or workplace less
0: competitive that would be my uh, right so instead of adjusting women to the workplace that was created by men adjust the workplace to something that is more reasonable. Mm -hmm.
1: How realistic is that?
0: Um, So think about it not from a policy perspective so think about say that you were opening a new company now and you work in an industry in which people work 80 hours a week. You can do the same and have a very competitive environment with 80 hours a week. You'll get the best men that you can get probably a few women mostly men or imagine that you will say you know what in this company we're going to do the same but we're going to do it 40 hours a week. Then you might be able to get many women that are much better than the men that, you'll get, you, that you can get for, with what you offer right because the women that are willing to work 40 hours a week but not 80 hours a week will come to your company like if you create an environment which is much more uh, egalitarian if there'll be enough women in the company such that the football example that I gave before will not be there you're going to get much better people to work for you and then your company will be much more successful so the, th- that's one direction in which you know the the private sector basically businesses can create environment that will attract the more talented women because the the unemployed. If you look at unemployed financial advisors now, or unemployed computer scientists, the woman, the best woman over there, be, between the within the unemployed, is much better than the best man. But she's not willing to work eighty hours a week, or you know whatever the the environment requires. So I think that one direction that could be very promising is um, making the environment as a, from you know going from. Uh, bottom-up if you like so from the small companies that will decide to change the environment over there in order to attract the, the more talented women and, and do well. Another direction could come from you know in the public sector and I think that again Europe is in much better shape than in the US in that respect. Make sure that the balance that you dictate so some kind of affirmative action you dictate that you know a certain percent has to be women, right? So, and it could be that in the short run you're going to lose something and there are quite a lot of problems with affirmative action, so the, you know, when you see a, a woman you don't know if it's because she's she was the most talented person or because she was the most talented woman and they needed a woman, so women are also going to suffer a bit in the short run. But I think that in the long run if the role models will be will be there of women that made it, then more women will success, uh, will invest in this kind of success early on, right? And, so, and you will change the culture, right? So it's not that, you know, a woman will come to a place with, ten, you know, there'll be 10 men and one woman and it's going to be difficult for her. But the balance will be, better, will be there. And if that will be the case, uh, women will be more likely to invest in it. Now, going back to preferences, I don't think so there is a big movement of trying to convince girls to to go and study science, technology, and math right? My daughter is in an engineering school there are eighty one percent boys and nineteen percent girls right and that's not an exceptional thing right um, I'm not sure that we need to worry about that right so if if a girl wants to go to study math, that's great. If a boy wants to go and study math, that's great. And we should encourage them and tell them, look, it's not a gender thing, just do whatever you want. But if it's not balanced, I don't think that it's a big, uh, it's a big problem, right? If, if those are the preferences, so if, if the reason is that the girl looks at the, at the you know, computer science and she says, well, there are 95 men and three women in this class, I don't want to be there. I'm not going to be successful, and all the stereotypes that come with it, there is work showing stereotype threats, or they this, this start raising these kind of things, then it's bad. But if girls will say, well, you know what, I don't like math that much, and more boys will say, you know what, I like math, that's, that's fine, that's, I don't see this as a problem. So the goal doesn't have to be to equalize the number of girls and boys, but the goal should be to encourage everyone who likes it and is capable to, to go and do that.
1: Um. Mm-hmm. Did your research on gender influence your way of parenting?
0: It's a good question um, and <laughs> not really. I don't think that it really did. So we were we have two girls, like I mentioned before, and the boy, and they are all very different from each other, so it's very hard to uh, to say, I, "I don't think that we did." So that's my guess is that uh, we didn't but change the way we are raising our kids, but I don't have the counterfactuals, so I don't know. <laughs>
1: That's a very economist-like answer. Yes. Ah, mm, mm, I want to close the chapter gender, uh, gender, but my my last question is that I read a paper from you from 2004 and there I found a sentence very interesting where you wrote in the end of the paper that there's a publication bias in economics, that papers or the journals are more likely to publish papers that find gender difference. The those that don't
0: right. How so? It's uh, it's the man bite dog kind of uh, thing that you know very well as a journalist, right? So the journals the, are more interested in the sensational findings that you find. So if you say, oh, we we did this and we didn't find a gender difference, they will not publish it. And you say, we did this and we found a gen- big gender difference, they they will publish it. So, us as consumers of this literature. Uh, can get really the wrong perception. So imagine that from 100 experiment that you run six find differences, only these six are published, you as an outsider look at the literature and say, wow everyone finds uh, gender differences simply because those papers are published and the others are not published. People don't even bother writing them because they know that they're not going to be published. So you can get um, a, bad perce- a wrong perception about how big the difference is. And I think that we do. I think that there are gender differences. They are less big, maybe, than uh, in, especially in preferences. They are less big, maybe, than the literature uh, argues.
1: I see, I see. Very interesting. Um, as, an, as a behavioral economist, you, you study incentives. You study why people take decisions. And in, in the Western world, in the U.S., in, in Europe and in Israel too, um, a lot of people um, make decisions they probably wouldn't want to make, but they do it anyway. For example, they smoke. A lot of people want to stop smoking, but they don't achieve it. They eat unhealthy food. Even, even when they know when I'm 60, probably I will regret it. Uh, they don't do as much sports as they would like to do. So um, as an, as a behavioral economist, what can you tell us on how, how can we make people to bring these two things in, in, in right. line?
0: So most of my work nowadays is around incentives and behavior change. So how do we take incentives and use it to get exactly what you just described? How do we get people to achieve goals health goals that they really want and they uh, they fail to do. And the, the problem is that the incentives are already there because people do want to exercise more. People spend billions of dollars in you know registering to gyms and buying diet books and buying new shoes and then nothing, right? So it just doesn't work and people want to stop smoking and they're not capable of doing this and uh, the question is if the incentives are already there people want it so much what can we do with our very small intervention because you know, clearly if i'll pay you a million dollar to stop smoking you'll stop smoking most of us you know most of the smokers if you'll offer them a million dollar to not to smoke for the coming 10 years they will not smoke i think but that's not a reasonable uh, that's not a, a policy tool that we can use so the question is, how can we use relatively small amounts that will encourage you to do something that, in principle, you, you, want, you really want to do, so you would have done it. So we've done a few things. One of them was uh, we invited students to our lab and told them that we'll give them $100 if they'll go to the gym eight times during the coming month. And what we saw was that these people actually went to the gym eight times during the coming month, as we expected. You know, $100 is a lot of money for our students. But the question was, what would happen after we would stopped paying them? So we paid them for a month. What's going to happen after we're done paying them? And it was encouraging for us to find that they were actually more likely to continue to go to the gym relative to the control group. So the fact that we gave them incentives to go for a month actually created some kind of habit, in particular with the people who didn't go at all to the, who, who didn't visit the, the gym before. Those people were more likely to continue after we stopped paying them. So that was uh, very encouraging and it's a work with Gary Charnas. And then a new result that we have about this is that if you pay these students, it's a different group, but if you pay them to go to the gym, their academic performance also improves. So there are some, uh, some effects on, on other things. So You give incentives to go to the gym, but it also affects how well you do in school, in, at the university and things like that. So one of the questions that we are trying to answer is how can we create habits using incentives? How we can uh, convince you?
1: So the idea is to give people money to start doing something and when they do it, when they do it for mm, a couple of weeks or months, it's it starts to be a habit, and they just continue to do it because they've well already yeah. started it. Why not?
0: Right, and the incentives don't have to be money, right? So the incentives could be something that you really care about. All of us have something that we really care about and feel you, you know that uh, could really convince me. So for a professor, I you know teaching less would be very attractive. Everyone has something that. Uh, uh, that really motivates them. The, the trick, one of the tricks that you need to do is to find what is it that motivates the, that person the most.
1: But people also like money kind of a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I have nothing against money. All mm. I'm saying is that it
0: doesn't have yeah. to be money, right? It could be other forms of payment. Okay. Ince- incentives are not just money.
1: Mm. Um, if I think about the societal costs of smoking, for example, I didn't do the math, but I guess it would be worth it to give people 100, 100 bucks a month to stop smoking for like two years.
0: So it's not clear, right? So if you look at early on in the early 70s, I think, uh, Philip Morris, when the when the lawsuit started, they ca- came up and said, look, smoking is actually very good for the public. Uh, you know, if you think about pension. The government is actually saving a lot of money by having uh, people smoke, right? So if you want to reduce the problem with that you have with social security and pension, give free cigarettes. That's so it's not clear that it costs that much if you think about it in that perspective. I think that the cost, instead of uh, looking at the the money, so the monetary cost is there for the insurance companies. They really suffer. So if you are insured, the health insurance company they are going to suffer, and those are the the. Uh, business group, uh, companies that try to, to reduce smoking. I think that the the line that uh, smoking is bad from a social perspective is more true regarding the fact that you know people die suffer and then young uh, die young, right? That's uh, that's clearly not something that we want to have. So that's but, a problem.
1: But did sorry, did independent economists also calculate that smoking da- doesn't cost us Anything no, so Philip Morris, are... Philip
0: Morris understood very fast that to say that they save money because they kill people faster is not a good line of defense for them, <laughs> right? But it's, you know, so economists understand this kind of humor that, you know, if you want to solve the pension problem, give people cigarettes, but that's not, cl- clearly no one is rec- really recommending this. But uh, actually, smoking is a very interesting topic because if you look at the public policy for reducing smoking, it's one of the most successful ones. You know, it started in the 70s, and it reduces smoking by a lot. And the interesting part is that it did this with very small, stupid steps. So many steps that were really, you know, putting these disgusting pictures on the on the packages. Many small steps that each one in separation seems really could seem really bad. Somehow together they they really worked, and that's I think that that's a that's a good example of something that we should learn and try to see what um, how it could be used maybe in other uh, places.
1: Mm. Um, but still, a lot of people smoke. I mean, in the U.S., it's a lot less by now. In right. So I, I live
0: in California, and in California, if if you smoke. People would move to the other side of the sidewalk, you know, through a bus that, of course, gets much more smoke out of the, but, yes, so, right, in California, so the U.S. is a big country, right, so California, I think, is very different than some other uh, states, but, yes, Uh, I think that in Europe you see more smokers, but I think that the statistics is also encouraging, so it does go down, but not as fast as it does in the U.S.
1: But if I, if I have a broader view, and a lot of people um, don't do enough sports, they eat unhealthy. So is this a problem? Did't we just uh, take take all those uh, conclusions we have from from your science, for example, and other behavioral economists, didn't we just use it well enough or or are we as a society not able to, to uh, change people's behavior that fast or that effectively.
0: So I think that behavioral economics makes more claims at this stage than we can actually do, right? So we are. It's it's very hard to go to a company and say, look, I can design an incentive scheme that will destroy your company. No one will hire you, right? So you need to go and say, well, you know, I can design an incentive scheme that will double your profit. I think that we are making baby steps in the right direction so there are uh, you know we learn how to use this tool it takes time but I'm I'm very uh, optimistic about this in the lecture I'm going to talk about few of these methods that that do work and I think that in you know 10 years from now we'll know much more about what works and what doesn't and again it doesn't have to be me as an outsider giving you money to to do something it could really be uh, you understanding your incentives and understanding how to to be more sophisticated and convince yourself to exercise more for example that's um, that's a key thing
1: One thing I found very interesting um, when reading your the research you 've done is that in uh, creating incentives can also uh, going to the wrong direction. Yes. You you wrote a paper um
0: it's called
1: The Fine is a price. Could you tell me a little bit about that? What, what what did you find there?
0: Right. So at the time we lived in Israel and I mentioned my two girls. They are older than the son, so they we had only the girls at the time. We lived in a suburb of Tel Aviv. It's a paper together with Aldo Rostochini. And uh, so Aldo and I started talking about this situation, which when you pay people, it can actually change what they do. And then we we lived in a suburb, like I said. We had to pick up our girls from the daycare by 4 p.m. and we went to lunch in Tel Aviv. So I drove like crazy in order to be there in time because you know you need to pick up your uh, kids from the daycare in time. Then the the teacher or the principal of the daycare introduced a very small fine of 3 euros if you came 10 minutes late. Again, we were in Tel Aviv. This time we didn't drive like crazy because uh, it's only 3 euros. Right? So before that, we didn't know how bad it is. Now the, the teacher, the principal told us that it's only 3 euros. I'm not going to kill myself for 3 euros. So, we designed an experiment in which we had 10 dakers over 20 weeks. So, we, first we just followed the dakers, then we introduced a fine, then we removed the fine. Because, uh, so when we introduced the fine, we saw that more parents came late. So, m- more parents behaved like, I, like my wife and I did. And one explanation could be that now they feel that they pay for babysitting services. So then, you know, if that's the case, when we remove the incentives, the fine, it should go down again, but it didn't. And so, so that implies that basically the parents received some kind of new information. Before that, they didn't know how bad it is. Now they know that it's not that bad to be, to be 10 minutes late. Actually, we, we changed basically the social norm. And the idea behind this more generally is that uh, when you introduce incentives, you can in economic terms we call, we call it crowding out. You can crowd out the, the the norm, the motivation that you had before that to be on time. You need to be on time because that's the right thing to do and if you do this you can, uh, you can change it by introducing incentives and that's something that you should always be careful. There are areas in which it's more important than others. Education is a very good example of a place where you need to be worried if you pay kids to study you want be worried that they won't understand from that that the only reason they should study is because they get rewards and not because uh, it's rewarding in itself. So.
1: so one needs to be careful. Um, you're, you're a behavioral economist for a, a couple of years now. Uh, did it in any way change your your the way you lead your own life. Do you understand your incentives better because yes. of the research?
0: Yes. So one of the things that I understand. So many people make mistakes in real life. I'm more likely to understand that I'm making a mistake. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to make the mistake, but I understand more when I when I make mistakes and I understand them more. But there are also some simple things that you can uh, that you can learn and use on you know from behavioral economics. So for example. Uh, think about texting while driving, there are, I think that I saw the statistics, it's, it's amazing that the number of people that get killed uh, as a result of this is, you know, probably tens of thousands of people in the world die every year now from texting while driving. So texting would be sending emails, whatever, when you touch your phone while you drive. And we all know that it's very tempting. Right? Because, you know, so you need to pick up your son from school, so you just, I'll just text him, I'll be five minutes late. Or you see that the road in front of you is empty, so you just, you know, I'll just do it very quickly. And, and The problem is that you don't get feedback, because if you text, it's not like you're going to have an accident the same day. You can do it, you know, it increases your chance of, of having an accident by a lot. So if you do it for five years you're going to get into a serious accident probably but the feedback that we get you know the first time that we do it we just do two letters and it's fine and then you know uh, we, we do three and four and then we write the whole sentence and we have an accident right. And the question is how can we change it so one how can we change our own behavior in this respect so one way to think about it is that first we should all recognize how bad it is, how dangerous this uh, distraction is. And then what we should do is simply decide that we are not going to touch the phone during the, when we drive, right? So not that I'll do this kind of cost-benefit uh, calculation, you know, now it's uh, my son really needs it or the road is open. No, I, if I open it up to this kind of calculations it's not going to work, I'm going to have an accident. If I make a decision that I don't let my brain play with this yes, no, yes, no, it's just a decision, it's it's much easier to follow this way. So that's an example that you know and, and you can think about with respect to driving you can decide you know what I'm just not if I'm in traffic I'm just not going to switch lanes even if it's very tempting because that's again that's when you see lots of accidents right so um, in the u.s now it's easier uh, if i go out to drink i can just have uber back you know i go there with uber come back with uber i don't you know i don't even think about it it's not oh no today i'll drink only one beer and then i, and I just say no i'll go with uber it's going to cost me ten dollars but uh, then I don't have to worry about driving back and and we know that after you drink your um, decision making is impaired right so you might think that you're not run, but you're not going to, to be as good of a driver as you are when you're not. So you just decide in advance to take Uber, you decide in advance not to switch lanes, you decide in advance not to touch the phone. And those are, those are much more effective than starting this negotiation in your brain each time you want, you want to, to decide whether it's worth it to text or not
1: so it also makes your life a little bit easier.
0: Yes, ah. yes, 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 absolutely.
1: You're also advising a co- a companies, right? Yes. How, how, how do you help companies to motivate their, their workers or to so make more effective?
0: So one of the lines is to, towards the, you know, the HR, right? So how to really build compensation that works better. Another one is towards wellness, so how to convince your workers to lose weight or exercise more. And a different direction is how to get your customers to be more engaged. So if you want them to visit your website or to buy something from you, how can you change the incentives that you give over there for the buyer? So it's from the customers all the way to the workers, right? And it can include also the executives. So I worked with a company in which they decided to use something that is called loss aversion that Cannon and Tversky found in the early 80s. And the idea, basically, they they receive bonuses at the end of every year. A lot of money, so hundreds of thousands of dollars per uh, executive. And the idea was that, instead of it... So, the, the way they do it, they set a goal at the beginning of the year, and at the end of the year, if you met the goal, you get the bonus, and... The idea was to set the goal as before, but give them the bonus in January. And then, if in December, they... Meet the goal, they keep the bonus. If not, they have to uh, pay it back. Loss aversion tells us, and it's uh, it was shown empirically many times that giving up something that you have is much more painful than the absolute value of getting something uh, new. Right. So to get, if I'll give you a hundred dollar, you'll enjoy it, but uh, it's going to be in absolute value less. Uh, less dramatic than if I, if I take $100 from you, right? So and uh, so you try to use it. So it could be from the person who picks up the phone all the way to the CEO and also towards the customers.
1: And do you already have some results if it works at this yes, company? Yes,
0: I have lots of results around it, but uh, that's what I'm going to talk about later uh, today. So maybe you can use that, can you use that part? So that's no, So I have lots of results with companies and um, here's an example of, of results. So it's with a company called Edmunds.com. It's a website in the US that when you want to buy a car, you go online and you type, uh, say, Toyota Corolla and few websites offer you reviews on this. And then if you go, Edmunds.com is one of them. If you go to the, to the website of the company, First they give you information and then you can put your zip code in and then, then they offer you ads from local dealerships that sell Toyota Corolla. So they sell the, the car that you're interested in and if you click on this ad and submit your details to the, to the salesperson such that he or she can contact you, Edmunds get some kind of payment. So Edmunds want you to do that. So the way Edmonds Convinced uh, the, its audience to actually uh, submit this, uh, this information was by giving them discounts. So, if you want to buy a $20,000 car, we'll give you $500 discount. Now, $500 is a lot of money, but not so much compared with $20,000, right? Because it's, uh, it's uh, it doesn't look as meaningful, because we know that we think in relative terms in many cases. So what we did we we tried to look at something that will carry more meaning than just cash. And there is a, there is a work by Richard Taylor that talks about fungibility of money. So economics argued that you know if you have a dollar that you got through from a gift and a dollar that you got from salary you should treat them the same they are all it doesn't matter where they came from. But uh, Th- uh, Taylor showed that people have what he called mental accounting, so they treat different money in in different ways. So if you go to a restaurant, very often um, you would rather spend half an hour looking for parking instead of paying 10 euro for the parking, but then when you go and order wine, you don't really care about 10 euro, because spending 10 euro on wine sounds like a good deal. Spending it on parking is very annoying, so not all expenses are the same. So we, we looked for something that people would appreciate more maybe than $500 in cash and what we found is that if you give them gas cards it carries much more meaning. $500 in gas that you can fill up your car for a very long time and people hate paying for gas so we thought that that's going to be more motivating. So we ran an experiment in which some people got $500 cash and some people $500 in gas cards and we saw that the people, that indeed the people that got the gas cards were more likely to actually do the activity that the company wanted them to do. And it was, interesting we, it was interesting because we saw that we can reduce the value of the gas cards all the way down to $200 and it was still more effective than $500 cash. So people really look at the um, at the guest card differently than they look at discount. Of course, and and that's why you need to run experiments because if you ask people, what do you prefer, $200 in guest card or $500 in discount, everyone would say $500 in discount. But if you look at actual behavior, what's more motivating, you see that uh, the $200 guest card is more motivating than $500.
1: Very interesting. In the end of my interviews, I always ask two questions. One is, if people listen to this podcast now for nearly an hour, they are really interested in what you were talking about. Do um, you have three book recommendations for them?
0: The Y-axis, that's the best book ever written Accidentally by human being. beings. <laughs> Accidentally I'm a co-author of it, with John List, yes. Uh, it's a good question, what are the good books on the topic? Uh, so my I will not answer the question because my friends, so all of the books were written by my friends. and If I mention one and not the other I will no. uh, lose some friends. Uh, I think that there are some very good uh, books out there. It depends on how deep you want to go or how pop science you want it to be. and. There are many good books out there. I'm, okay. not, going, I'm not going to recommend any, any of them simply for political reasons. I don't want to fight with, with my friends.
1: <laughs> okay, uh, I'll accept that. Um, the last question would be, is there one thing the media doesn't talk enough about? Can you tell me one thing?
0: Those are tough questions. What are the answers that people give to this?
1: I'll tell you after your, your answer. Yeah,
0: you're not going to help me? Uh, what would they like people, to, to the media, to talk about more? So, I, like to, uh, so I, I have a good answer, actually. What I would like, I would like to see much more fact-based discussion than the shallow one, right? So um, think about self-driving cars. The world is clearly moving in this direction. Self-driving cars, my engineer friends tell me that are already safer than people. They have these kind of index, indices and, you know, they are just safer in, in most cases. So if you take them to Vienna, to the street, uh, a taxi driven by, by the computer would be safer than by the taxi driver that brought me from the airport. The problem is that, the, I think that that's where we started in a sense, the, or at some point we talked about the men biting dogs, so if when there will be an accident, and there are going to be accidents with self-driving cars, that's what the media is going to talk about. So if my taxi would have had an accident on the way here, it would be on page three of the, of the newspaper. A the self-driving car would be not just in Vienna's news, it would be all over the world, CNN would would send a team to to investigate, right? So, and uh, we get the best thing in the in the sense of what's the probability. So, what's the probability of having an accident? How dangerous it is? Should we move in this direction? And in in a sense, that restrict our discussion uh, towards new technologies and more generally. I mentioned Trump as a joke, but you know the fake uh, reality that is being uh, done over there, I think that that's a big push that the media is also facing and I think that the, the most important battle that US journalists can have is to, to stick with actually checking the facts and uh, not, not giving up to the um, more popular not evidence based uh, things it's it's a, it's not an easy battle that you're facing
1: it's not totally in my hands but i'll do my best yeah 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 no, thank you very much.
0: much sure thank
1: you so das was für heute schön dass du bis am ende dabei warst wenn dir die folge gefallen hat dann freue ich mich wenn du sie mit deinen freunden teilst also auf facebook auf twitter Ich freue mich auch darüber, wenn du den Podcast abonnierst oder mir einen Review auf Items schreibst. Das hilft mir, den Podcast bekannter zu machen. Immer dankbar bin ich auch über Tipps, was ich besser oder anders machen könnte oder über Feedback dazu, wen ich in der Zukunft zu einem Gespräch einladen soll. Ihr könnt mir einfach über Facebook oder Twitter schreiben, da müsst ihr nur meinen Namen eingeben. Oder ihr schickt mir ein E-Mail an andreas.sator.at. Bis zum nächsten Mal.